There is another kind of shore in Beringia, one in which the solid is not earth. Each winter, cold hardens the sea. Molecules lose energy, transforming liquid to solid. Ice crystals form, skimming the ocean's surface when the temperature drops to 28.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Wind and rising warm waters mix the crystals into suspension. As the cold deepens, crystals intertwine into a greasy film, thicken, and become slush. Sometimes, ocean swells ball the slush into lily pads of ice. Sometimes, the young ice rolls over the ocean's surface like an oil slick, still carrying enough brine to be elastic. Sheets of slushy ice slide and adhere to each other on the waves, condensing and exuding salt until all that is frozen is fresh. A terrestrial brink floats outward over fluid water. It was these formations that Yankee ship captains feared, the slurry hardening around their hulls, then turning solid and opaque. Slabs of yearling ice will build four, five, six feet thick between October and May, hundreds of miles of sea covered over by a suspended coastline. You're listening to Climbs, an Ottoman history podcast production in collaboration with the Environmental Humanities Initiative at University of Virginia. I'm Chris Grayton. In this first installment, I'm sitting down with one of my favorite new authors. Bathsheba DeMuth. Bathsheba DeMuth is a professor of history at Brown University, and she's just published a book entitled Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait. And really, it's why I went to grad school was to write this book. In this podcast, I'll ask Professor DeMuth about her method of depicting the unique environment of Beringia, the interconnected Arctic space on both shores of the Bering Sea. She'll be reading some of the best passages from her book as we talk about the experience of Beringia's human and non-human inhabitants amid rapid changes brought by hunting, trade, empire, capitalism, and communism during the 19th and 20th centuries. Stay tuned. Our listeners probably have read academic history books, and this one has a style that's unlike most that I read. I feel like some of these passages could be read by David Attenborough in a sort of like theatrical way, and really, I think that you bring these vivid images of the Beringian environment into the text, and actually help the reader imagine a space that they probably haven't ever seen. How did you develop this writing style? I mean, where does this way of writing about the environment come from in your work? I read a lot of not history might be the shorthand <laughs> to that question. <laughs> no disrespect to the historians who are No listening. disrespect to the historians. <laughs> it was a technical issue of how to make this compelling when you know it, it's not about a place that lots of people have visited and it's not about a place that seems of immediate political importance. I'm very preoccupied by it, but as W.H. Auden put it, it is altogether elsewhere if you're living you know, like most of us do down here in temperate parts of the world. For me, that was sort of a technical writing style issue, how to get people to care about this very distant, not particularly populous, not top of mind part of the world. And also finding a way of incorporating a whole variety of voices into the text. How do you make a narrative that incorporates whales and incorporates whalers of all different varieties through time? So I read Moby Dick a lot. Um, which you can probably (laughs) tell from the first couple of chapters, which deal with whaling. So it's very much in kind of Melville's uh, wheelhouse. But also because Melville just at a sentence level 
is extraordinarily good at evoking a set of circumstances that most people will never encounter personally. I looked at Barry Lopez, who writes about the Arctic. Um, he's a nonfiction writer, quite famous one. And in many ways, I'm writing kind of in the tradition of, of Lopez to some degree. There's an Anupiak poet named Joan Navia Kane, uh, who's from King Island, which is one of the, the places in this book whose work was also very influential for her kind of ways of thinking about place and thinking about her own relationship to it. And you spent a lot of time there, which is a fact that will be clear to our listeners as we move through discussion. And I'm wondering, you know, some of the sections where you're describing the geography, I feel like I'm watching it, looking out at the ice through your eyes. Did you take field notes about your observations in this way, like things that maybe we would see and would strike us, but that we wouldn't normally like try to verbalize in terms of as, in, as impressions? Yes, I did keep notes and always kick myself when I didn't have the discipline to keep notes, because of course you go have a long day doing something and the last thing you want to do in the evening is sit down and write up your field notes. But every time I did, it was extremely and immediately beneficial. And I also actually revised big chunks of this book while on trips to Beringia. So I remember rewriting the whale chapters sitting in Shishmaref in Alaska and editing like the final draft of the, the manuscript before I went back to my editor, you know, in a little apartment in Chukotka on the Russian side of the Bering Strait. So some of it was was quite immediate in the sense that I could, you know, be out all day kind of having these impressions of place and then come home in the afternoon and, and write them into the manuscript. There are many ways for an animal to survive the tempers of the open ocean. Jellyfish are no more than a tissue. Squids take on the color of their surroundings. Fish school by the thousands and spawn by the millions. Cetaceans' way of living requires bulk, longevity, and knowledge. Like humans, some whale species pool and share this knowledge between generations and across space. The worth of a place, the route of a migration, or the results of an action are not inherited in the genetic code, but through communication. Some of this transmission is aural. Species like humpbacks spool out their complex melodies. Gray whales do not sing, but signal each other in tones so low they circumvent ambient noise. They will approach an outboard motor with curiosity, emitting sounds that match the sputtering mechanical frequency. Sperm whales click and creak, sounds that young calves babble before they can articulate sense in the dialect of their clan, a vocabulary they share with thousands of other sperm whales across thousands of kilometers. The success of a female sperm whale in living a long, fat life filled with babies is determined by her clan, and clans can treat whales of different dialect with hostility. Some of what whales sing may be the sonic form of things that human cultures sculpt or forge or paint. Other sounds must be to lure or to entertain, to love, to protect, or to trumpet joy. Or to warn, to send the need for fear far into the deep. Animals, creatures, living things, even non-living things are major actors in this text, actors with agency. To give our listeners a sense, you talk about plankton doing work. You use the term work to describe what they do. You bring in consciousness of animals. The best example I found was that 
you're talking about walruses sort of watching out for danger and that the sentinels wouldn't react to the sound of gunshot because it sounded like the fracturing sea ice, which I think I thought that was amazing. But more analytically significant is your use of the word culture throughout the text to describe whales and how they live. And for a biologist, it might not be that weird. But for people in the humanities, I know talking to anthropologists, do animals have culture? Whoa, that's a big question. I think it's incredibly effectively deployed in the text. But some might say this is anthropomorphism, talking about whales having culture. So could you explain more what you mean or talk more about that whale culture that you're trying to bring into the narrative? I like the fact that you highlighted that this might actually be a weirder point for humanists than for biologists, because my use of the term culture, about 50% of it is inspired by kind of contemporary marine biology and the way in which researchers who work with whale species are starting to talk about their behavior. And it's about 50% inspired by the ways in which, you know, the people who have the longest ongoing relationship with whales in the Arctic understand uh, whales, which is to say that the indigenous folks, you know, who have several millennia worth of, Mm. of experience watching whales and have always understood them as, you know, highly sentient, agented, um, moral beings that, you know, have a social world of their own that kind of intersects and interfaces with people, but is also quite complex and and works on its own rules. And in many ways, I think there's kind of a convergence, although the vocabularies and, and cosmologies are very different between what marine biologists are thinking and what indigenous societies in the Arctic have understood about whales for a long time. But that word culture, which is so often just reserved as the, it's sort of the final frontier of being a person or of being a human person mm-hmm. is that yeah. you have culture. The way that I'm using it here is to think about animal species that have the capacity to communicate and pass on information and capacities between each other without um, it being a genetic passage, mm-hmm. right? So not a set of behaviors that are inherited through you know, generations of adaptation in the way that we're used to thinking of natural selection, Mm -hmm. but behaviors that change because animals learn from each other and particularly learn between generations so that a parent will teach its offspring how to behave in the world through vocalization or, you know, through observation or through kind of other ways um, of, of getting information across. And in the case of whales, I think it's, they're a species where you can see what we would think of as culture in ways that are really quite close and familiar, partly because of the songs that, Mm. you know, whales are incredibly kind of artistically expressive animals and, you know, people like listening to whale songs. And there's a reason for that because they sound melodic, but it's also very clear that, you know, bowhead whales, for example, will come up with different songs in the course of a summer and they'll pass them along to each other. So you can, you can hear the songs changing because they learn and they're removing them around and, you know, whales will pick up variations and they'll experiment. And that looks, you know, it looks like a jazz artist riffing, right? Like it, it's familiar in that sense. And we're not even sure what all that, you know, vocalization is doing. Is it attracting mates? Is it passing on the gossip? Who knows? That's sort of the sense in which I'm using culture. And I'm also using it in a sort of provocative way because I think that one of the core things that I want to do with this book is imagine a way of telling history and a way of just thinking about history in which the people and the events are not entirely driven by human concerns and human aspirations and human desires, that they're settled in this ecosystem where there's other animals, there's other processes at play. 
and that the whales are a particularly kind of rich place to do that because they look so human-like in some ways. Yeah. But it's part of the sort of other theory of history that I'm kind of sliding in alongside the description of the sperm whales. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if, if ecology is culture and whales have their own culture, then in some regard, they are a representative of, of a kind of uh, native ecology in this landscape. I mean, that's the impression that I came away with. They live so long. I think bowhead life expectancy was higher than human life expectancy until recent uh, centuries, which is a blip sort of in the Earth's history. And so the text really prompted me to think about animals as having sort of this knowledge of the environment um, that humans both exploit and sometimes ignore. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. In death, either from old age or harpoon wounds, a bowhead sinks from the surface to the seafloor. A whale fall, bringing tons of fat and protein to a place of little light and scarce energy, sequestering the carbon in a whale's body away from the atmosphere. Over the carcass blooms a succession of organisms, sharks and hagfish first, then other small creatures, and finally bacteria specialized to feed in the anaerobic space of bone. Hundreds of species can make thousands of generations over a decade on a single carcass, a whole world of lives. For part of the 19th century, these minute communities likely flourished on the skeletons left by commercial whalers. Then the whales ceased falling. Far below the human ken, commercial whaling left quiet, unsung extinctions. What may also have died with the songs and culture of the bowheads is similarly submerged. Humans can only imagine the loss of those 18,000 or more voices. Your book deals with transformations occurring under the impact of capitalism and communism, and we'll spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, but even before this sort of human transformation of the landscape uh, and the lives of the animals that live in it, you have the long-standing history of many diverse indigenous communities uh, that had perhaps even more complex and intimate relationships with the environment and who exploited it to maintain their livelihoods in, in, in a particular way. How did you go about reconstructing this indigenous ecology? And I'm asking this question for the historians who are worried about the, the trouble of trying to reconstruct what is often there but hard to access before imperialism, before capitalism, these forces come in. Right. The, the great source question, like how do you tell stories from places that don't necessarily have a kind of robust traditional archive? So I knew very early on when I was when I started this project because I had lived in the Arctic for a long time. And when I first went up there, I was living in an indigenous community that while I was very interested in capitalism and socialism and how they operated, that they were operating in the homelands of people who were already there and that keeping those people central to the story was really critical to what I wanted to do. And then there's the question of how to do that. And it turns out in Beringia, it's actually not as difficult as it might be in other parts of the world because colonialism is relatively recent. It's actually very recent. Um, many places don't really have sustained contact with either Russians or people coming from the United States until the 1880s, mm. which is not that long ago. Um, and it's particularly not that long ago in societies where the dominant mode of passing on information and important events and keeping track of the past is done orally rather than in a written form. 
So you're talking about people's great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. So there's actually an incredibly robust archive of people's experiences, of individual stories about what life was like in the very, very early days of contact and when it starts to become more intense, why the 20th century is different than the 19th century. And many of these have been written down by communities that want to sort of make sure that there's an official public-facing version of their pasts that's also out there. And so I relied on those uh, very much in putting this book together, both from Russia and from the U.S., and in terms of thinking about the ways in which indigenous folks interact with the environment around them, so much of contemporary life is still kind of requires a relationship with bowhead whales or with walruses or with caribou that um, it's obviously not the same as it was in you know 1880, but there are people there who are very much uh, kind of continuing a set of practices that are participant in that uh, that tradition. So that also makes it possible to get kind of an immediate set of impressions and interactions with the ways in which, you know, a subsistence village works and and the ways people kind of imagine their relationships with animals or with the ocean or with the landscapes that they're in. Far from Beringia, walruses were a minuscule part of imagining a prosperous, mechanized future, as fan belts on power looms or grease in factory cogs, or as the luggage for a train journey from San Francisco to New York, or the tip of a billiard cue. Customers saw no death in their ivory buttons, unaware of the former creature that helped enrich its oceans and might have expired defending its young. The buttons were just one more sign of new wonders for purchase, of rising plenty. In Beringia, the tide pulled the other way, exposing a bare shoreline. The market, having already made whale calories uncertain, was doing the same with walrus. Any shock of weather or migration now tilted coastal Beringians into precarity. The inaugural experience of industrial modernity in Beringia was one of profound loss. The commodification of animals and their bodies in Beringia during this period as it comes through in your work is so raw. It makes you feel, for the animals, it makes you feel the senselessness. You have whale bones being turned into corsets or umbrellas, fox pelts becoming mere currency, and rampant pollution associated with mining, various other things that appear in hindsight, very senseless, but at the time were justified using the market. It reminded me of Jason Moore's understanding of cheap nature, uh, which is how capitalism or the world economy generates economic value from the natural world by undervaluing it, in a sense. But one of the interesting things in this work is also that this is happening so far away from the centers of industry, from which quite a lot of history has been written. So what do you think the history of Beringia reveals about the history of capitalism, maybe in a different way? That's a very good question. I think there's a couple of things that I found striking doing the research. One is in contrast with sort of socialist production. And then one is just in terms of thinking about the sheer kind of reach of, of capitalism. And so I'll take the, the socialist comparison first. And so as I was doing this research, when I started it, I sort of assumed that there would be kind of far more contrast between Soviet-style development and American-style development than I actually found in practice. There are certainly places where they diverge um, and there are certainly places where they diverge with kind of enormous moral force if you're a person. But often the 
kind of impulse toward extraction and kind of maximizing what of nature becomes accessible to human purposes is very similar for, for both systems. Except the Soviet commitment to making all people equal all across the Soviet Union, so you would live in the same kind of apartment building and you would go to the same kind of cinema and you would pr- participate in the same kind of you know youth clubs and having a, a real kind of consistency of Soviet life also seemed to map on a desire to make every possible piece of Soviet space equally productive so that you know the walruses and the reindeer should be as enlisted in the Soviet project as anything else. Whereas capitalism, it's kind of this global vagrant that just sort of moves around and sometimes finds something of value and latches onto it for a while. And then, you know, the market moves on. The, the kind of desire for whalebone corsets goes out of fashion. And so the market moves away. And it sort of doesn't care if particular places are in or out of um, that, that kind of um, acquisitive impulse. And that has real differences in terms of what happens to animal species, because periodically they will get breaks under capitalism, potentially, not necessarily, but there's that sort of, you know, if market whims shift, that might happen. But it also means that for people, it's extraordinarily unequal and capricious that, you know, sometimes fox hunting is in a really good way to make a living. And sometimes fox hunting can make you no living at all. And that is completely dependent on market whims. Whereas the, you know, the Soviet system was much, much more consistent. And I thought that that was interesting in terms of just thinking about capitalism more generally and having this kind of global roving capacity to it that is, um, it's not really fixed in place and it's not really fixed in desire uh, nearly as much as the, the Soviet system. But it also means that capitalism will go anywhere that it can find something that people will buy. Um, and I was amazed at you know how common in every day many of these products that were coming from the Arctic were, particularly in the 19th century. That you know if you were living in Boston or Providence or New York, and you were at all well off, you were almost certainly living in direct contact with whales every day. You were burning them in your lamps. If you were a woman, you were wearing them like literally next to your skin. They were incredibly intimate parts of your daily life, but you had no idea, you know, where that whale came from. They were distant, abstract sort of things. And I would hardly be the first, you know, historian to point out that there's often this huge and kind of growing separation between production and consumption. But I think that the Arctic puts in pretty sharp perspective kind of what that does to the ecologies from which the the production comes because Arctic ecologies are so kind of finely tuned places. And what you're, what you're saying is that sort of the volatility of a market-based economy and, of course, the sheer volume and rampantness of the extraction and consumption is maybe particularly disruptive in a place where human existence is so predicated on, you know, a really complex balance uh, of, of factors and knowing and, and, and interacting with the environment uh, in a particular way. This isn't necessarily the easiest place for people to make right. an easy living, yeah. but people were doing it. Right. Uh, and so can, can you say more about how that's disrupted? Uh, by the introduction of these market forces. Yeah, so one way that I talk about it being disrupted in the book is that part of what market forces are doing is coming to an environment that has a very different capacity for what ecologists call primary production. So for the for landscapes to make calories through photosynthesis than exists in a temperate climate. So if you're in a temperate place, 
a sufficient amount of calories can be fixed through photosynthesis that you can have agriculture, and that's usually the basis of, uh, of an economy. This doesn't work in the Arctic because the, the sort of landscape does not allow for that. It's too cold, there's too much permafrost, and it means that the resources that people are dependent on are frequently marine, um, or they come from these kind of large migratory um, animal groups like caribou or reindeer um, that are able to move around to gather enough calories. So the kind of absence of agriculture makes a very different just basis for, for how people make a living there. And kind of paradoxically for a place that has less primary productivity than a temperate zone. It's it's basically making less energy as an ecosystem. The thing that outsiders came to Beringia for initially and often stayed for was energy. They were coming to ex- extract the calories that were in whales and walrus and trying to farm reindeer and do all these things that were really kind of about producing energy. Um, and in the process of that, they really kind of rearrange the way that energy works within these ecosystems. And then for, you know, Yupik and Chukchi and Inupiaq, communities that are trying to continue to make their living in the absence of whales or in the absence of walruses, this has a whole series of carry-on effects, some of which are very material, like famines in the, you know, the case of whale and walrus-dependent people who are dealing with the impact of commercial whaling, and then also adaptations to kind of dealing with market forces and participating in the market because it can bring things into Beringia that are mm-hmm. useful and that are incorporated into people's lives. And so kind sure. of managing those two things next to each other. But even in a lot of work that's offering a critical perspective on the formation of the world economy or world ecology, there's, a, there's often a sense that, you know, the market just draws people in. And here in your book, I think we see some a very clear picture where people are drawn into the market when the market starts to undermine the basis of their lively, livelihood in a very like primal way, like eliminating species that were like the backbone of entire uh, village uh, economies. Yes, yeah, and in the case of um, in the case of the whales and walruses, for for people that were dependent on those, the the kind of famine that comes in the wake of market hunting is pretty clear, and then it. It means that participating in some sort of market activity is a way to get calories to replace kind of what has been absented by the market. You know, the market brings to replace what it has taken away in some sense. Um, and it's not that, you know, Yupik communities or Chukchi communities didn't want things that sailors were bringing in. They certainly did. But I think that the necessity to rely on it rather than be kind of a participant in the market because you want to trade for certain things because they're really useful um, they're really helpful for your own kind of political ends. I think the massive absence of calories puts it into a much less kind of politically advantageous place for Chukchi and Yupik folks in the late 19th century in particular and changes. You know, basically they lost the capacity to go to war with outsiders, which before that had actually been a real viable and very practiced option. Like right. if you didn't like the way that the Russian empire was trading with you, you kicked them out. Right. Um, and then if you have lost a lot of people to famine and to imported disease, and you're kind of dependent on trade goods coming in to replace some of that, that option, that kind of political option goes away. When we were first introduced to white man's food, Robert Cleveland recalled, Everything tasted bad to us. We would smell their cooking, and it did not smell good to us. In Inupiaq, terms for foreign fare were descriptive and disapproving. Beans were a thing that makes you fart. Oatmeal was dandruff. Mustard was baby shit. And the word for bananas meant like a penis. Chukchi called mustard bitterness, bread powder meat, and brandy bad water. 
But because it was what they could make now from the place that they lived, people in Ungazik and other villages survived on flour cakes baked in a bit of oil. A Tanjarok, the violent leader from Tikigak, hired a Japanese cook off a passing ship for a week so that the man could teach Inupiaq women to bake. Others began to make a soup of flour, molasses, and seal grease. By the end of the 19th century, thousands of pounds of flour and sugar came north each year, a trickle of calories back into an emptied sea. So there are a lot of what I would call civilizational encounters in this book, uh, and you portray them in, in a very vivid and interesting way. It's not two poles of civilization, uncivilization, but rather a whole complex dynamic. So, for example, there's this cosmopolitan port city, you could call it cosmopolitan, I would say, called Jabbertown, where this whole culture around these new extractive industries takes shape that brings people from all over the world and many indigenous communities into contact in this little space. And you also have these accounts of whalers and how their behavior was so quote-unquote uncivilized in the eyes of like American officials, for example, that they also became a source of anxiety about the uncivilized nature of Beringia. Again, in their words, you ask at one point, what kind of state followed such men? And I think that's a really good uh, question. So, you know, there's this encounter caused by commercial activity that creates new political relationships between imperial states uh, in a very far-off region of their territories, and the state that takes shape doesn't really map on to any, like, theoretically best-case scenario for society or political organization. Could, could you t- tell us more about those relationships that emerged? There's this long period before nation-states or empires are really particularly active in the area when the market is, and so that the market in some ways predates the the real sovereignty of either the Russian Empire or the United States, um, and certainly before the Soviet Union arrives. And what this means is that you get a lot of discussions on the part of people in the United States and in the Russian Empire looking at what these commercial whalers are doing in the 19th century and trying to decide if it's good, if it's bad, if it needs regulated, what are they doing on behalf of the countries that they come from? And that even for the United States, which is the country that's benefiting from the kind of whale extraction from the Arctic and frequently benefiting from whale extraction from a part of the Arctic that the Russian Empire considers to be theirs, there's there's real doubt as to whether or not people who are only motivated by the market are actually capable of full sort of civilizational progress in the eyes of the kind of American bureaucratic apparatus. Right. You say that whalers were commerce personified, willing to sell anything, hunt anytime, and buy the favors of local women. So sort of not the ideal governed subject. They're extending sovereignty in kind of a technical sense, but they're also not sort of agents of the state. On the other hand, they're very good for the United States in terms of being able to set a series of sovereign claims all over the Pacific. It's not like the United States doesn't like having a whaling fleet that's active all over the world. It's really good for kind of the image of the United States, which is a young country at this point. And for the Russian Empire, it's almost entirely a bad thing because they're looking at what's happening in Chukotka, which is a part of the empire that they don't have sovereign control of really because the Chukchi have declined to be interested in being a part of the Russian Empire. And then the Chukchi go and start trading with Americans. So there's all of this kind of angst over the fact that Chukchi speak better English than they do Russian and 
are sort of trading away the wealth that should be part of the Russian Empire to the United States. The, the ways in which the market transcends what imperial powers want to be a fact on the ground is a, a real source of anxiety. The right of the Eucharist for Beringia's missionaries was exclusive. To believe in Christ meant not believing walruses were once people. Holding the two ways of being together at once was impossible. The only kind of transformation officially tolerated by Lutherans or Catholics or Methodists was communion and life becoming life after death. Yet the road to salvation was also earthly. In the 1920s, many missionaries in Beringia taught Christianity as a practice of making nature useful and use was measured in profit. And profits tied people to a future made better through material accumulation, a kind of liberation from privation through growth. It was a view shared by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, whose instructors worked alongside missions to teach, quote, those things which will enable the natives to secure a livelihood, including ivory carvings and harvesting pelts. From these little dabs of things, one Gamble teacher wrote, they could accumulate thousands of dollars every year. Christianity took care of souls, and capitalism took care of bodies, and together they were a potent answer to the problems of life, to the needs of living tissues, and to tissues bound to pass into death. Staying on the subject of civilization, I want to ask about sort of civilizing missions. The thing that most piqued my interest was, of course, the discontinuity created by the Bolshevik Revolution and the um, emergence of the Soviet Union as a new actor in Beringia on the uh, western uh, side of the Bering Strait. And you say that for the early Soviets, like in the early 20th century, the indigenous peoples they encountered in Beringia, quote, lived in two pasts at once, the past of their own primitiveness and the past of capitalist exploitation. You've already talked a little bit about the comparison between Soviet and American ecology uh, in Beringia, but can you say more about this particular Soviet project? Yeah, so the, the Soviet Union arrives in Beringia, well, ostensibly in 1917, but they really don't have anything like control until 1923, and are pretty clear that many of the problems in Chukotka are an immediate consequence of capitalism, which is, of course, if you are a keen young Bolshevik who has come all the way east to, to Chukotka, a really reassuring thing, right? If you can kick out the American traders and you can get rid of kind of the remnants of American whaling, then what you're going to have is sort of a flourishing communist society. That also means taking people who, for many Bolsheviks, are seen as being what they call primitive communists. So people who have never been industrialized and never had agriculture and sort of because of that should have a set of social relationships that make them very inclined to be communist. What they find in Chukotka is not quite so straightforward, not surprisingly, partly because for a while they're quite dependent on American traders to just supply basic foodstuff and get, you know, gasoline and things like that into the territory. And this is, you know, a very kind of anxiety producing situation that they have to deal with these, they call them capitalist predators for a while. But even after they get the capitalist predators kicked out, they discover that not everybody in Chukotka, not every native person is automatically interested in being a communist. And particularly the Chukchi reindeer herders who owned reindeer's private property 
And not every Chukchi person owned the same number of reindeer. So for the Bolsheviks, they appeared to have classes. The Chukchi were not particularly interested in collectivizing their reindeer herds automatically, as the, the Bolsheviks expected they would. And this actually produces kind of ongoing violent conflict between the Bolsheviks and the Chukchi, really from the 1930s to the beginning of the 1950s. It's distressing to the Bolsheviks because they come in, you know, much like the American missionaries, really convinced that they have the keys to the kingdom of happiness. Their ha- key- keys happen to be very material and earthly. It's, yeah. it's about building um, a society in which every person's work is valued and everybody has enough work. And from that, they have this kind of material plenty that will liberate everyone from the kind of immiseration of of poverty, essentially. It's a really, you know, there's a real ethics at the core of the the Soviet project um, that makes it really difficult for these young Bolsheviks, and they're mostly young, to see why it is that the Chukchi have their own keys to happiness that they're in the process of enacting all the time and therefore aren't particularly interested in what the, the Bolsheviks are offering. Enlightenment envisions a universal line from the benighted world to a better one. In the Bering Strait, capitalists tried variations on this theme, attempting regimes of private property and market participation. Communists attempted salvation by collective production. Neither vision proved particularly universal. The environmentalist claim to transcendent truth came from the extra-political, pre-culture realm of nature itself. Redemption was the result of people progressing back to a better world by living in ecological harmony. The moratorium on industrial whaling seemed like the triumph of this vision. Industrial societies the world over bowed to the universal veracity of environmental balance by withdrawing people from nature. I'm like a lot of people, I've been thinking a lot about the end of the world. And so have you in in multiple senses with this book. The quotation you just read there is sort of about how environmentalism did actually achieve protecting various aspects of the local ecology that might have otherwise been destroyed. Yet today, with global warming and climate change uh, that is occurring faster in the Arctic regions and these very precarious ecologies than in other parts of the world even, it seems like we've got a much bigger threat to the Arctic environment than just a few harpoons of some drunken whalers. This is really the end of the world we're talking about. Now, as you talk about in your book, for these indigenous communities, that end of the world kind of, we're in the post-apocalypse now for them in a way, although visions vary. But we're really looking out in the future not knowing what to think. So Do you think there's hope for Beringia, the one that you've captured in this book and the one you know so well from your time living and working there? This is a question I actually get asked quite a lot, probably not surprisingly, given the the kind of drumbeat of news out of the Arctic, which has really increased over the last couple of years, mostly because, you know, basically every month something in the Bering Strait is hitting some record, right? Yeah. It's almost a ritual at this point where at the end of the month I get, you know, a bunch of alerts on Twitter about how, you know, it was warmer this year than any year before, and there was less sea ice. And so the pace of change, as you said, is very dramatic. It's very fast. And it's just in the last three years, it started moving even more quickly than in sort of the the previous 17 years that I had experience in the Arctic. It's just incredibly disorienting. So the question of what do we do with that? 
um, is on my mind all the time. And I think that the thing that I take hope from comes from a couple of places. One is that we actually are paying attention now in a way that I think even six years ago, this book would have been, you know, one of the very few books kind of talking about the Arctic that was published or talking about climate change in any way. And this year it's one of, you know, probably a dozen and many of them have sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. People are actually thinking about this issue. They're going to climate marches in actual millions. It's an issue that major political parties, or at least one of our major political parties is actually thinking it has to be kind of a central question. That gives me hope in kind of a practical level. So does the fact that every person that I know who's under the age of 25 you know, particularly the students that I work with, Mm -hmm. take this issue as just kind of a fundamental piece of how they are going to make a future, that it's not optional, it's not a fringe thing, it's not a side project, it is completely central to being able to have a life. You know, I have students come into my office and say, you know, I want to have a kid, so I need to fix some things before I feel like that's responsible. And I think that that kind of generational turn where environmentalism moved from being something that you do as a hobby to something that you do as a way of life is also very encouraging. In terms of kind of Beringia itself, I think the capacity for the ecosystems and for the people that are enmeshed in them to adapt to the pace of this change is, um, you know, it, it really is a question And I think some species and some places are going to ride it out better than others. And all of them, much of that kind of question of how things are going to sort out, if how many, you know, reindeer are going to make it through the next three decades, um, are the bowhead whales going to keep growing in population as they have been for the last 70 years? Um, Are there going to be walrus, you know, by the time my grandchildren are alive? Those are really questions that implicate us more than the folks in Beringia, right? You know, the the people that participate in a highly mechanized fossil fuel intensive society don't live up there for the most part. They live, um, you know, in North America, they live in Europe, um, and they live in other parts of the world that are rapidly kind of picking up those ways of life and therefore need to figure out other ways of accessing energy. And that, that question is up to us. And it's really, to me, a question of what we decide we value. You know, do we value living in a world where the weather is relatively consistent and stable and doesn't throw terrible hurricanes and wildfires at us? And if we do, that will actually come with a set of obligations toward our resource use. If we don't value that and we value burning fossil fuels more, you don't get to have both, right? We don't get to have a stable climate and massive fossil fuel consumption simultaneously and so it's really up to us to choose choose to stop melting the ice of beringia yeah (laughs) well maybe there's a bowhead whale out there who in a hundred years will discover your interview and be so glad at how things turned out the book started (laughs) it's a little inside joke for the listeners who've read the beginning of the book um that's all the time we're going to have for this interview Professor Bathsheba Damuth, thank you so much for talking to me and spending this hour with me to read some passages from your book, some passages that I really enjoyed, uh, and to talk more about what went into writing uh, this really fantastic and highly accessible uh, work of, of history. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. 